darkly splendid abodes. The official podcast of Toronto Philippe. Exploring, if you will, practical philosophy. From science and the workings of the mind to spirituality, esotericism, and magic. Stooping down, dipping my wings, I came into the darkly splendid abodes. Alistair Crowley took an ancient rite of exorcism and repurposed it as an invocation of one's holy guardian angel. The resulting small book, Liber Semek, also contains elucidating commentary on the nature of the knowledge and conversation of the holy guardian angel and on magical practice in general. We'll take a deep dive into this important text. Do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law. Love is the law, love under will. Welcome back to A Talking Shop. <laughs> Last week we had Julius Caesar, but he won't be back. Unfortunately, he suffered from 23 stab wounds to the back. And uh, if he was, was better at Gematria, he might have been able to trade that in for more life. But, uh, sorry. Go yeah, wow, the- you've been working hard on that one. <laughs> Good for you. That's uh, that's my uh, attempt at a deep cut. <laughs> that's two jokes. The price of one. <laughs> 23 deep cuts. Um, <laughs> 23 deep cuts. Watch for the next 22. Uh, Lieber, Lieber Semech. Uh, this has been on our dock for a long time. We were going to do... Maybe uh, do this in season two, and then we didn't we didn't get around to it. Did you suggest this one? Why did you want to do this one? I don't remember for the life of me which one of us suggested. If I suggested this, oh, you know what it is. Um, definitely, I I I would have been uh, big support for this one. Uh, no no pun intended. Now that I think about Semek being a prop. Oh, yeah. But, uh, yeah, we talked about our suggestions for beginner books. Okay. And uh, the subject came up. And I think actually around the same time, uh, around the same time we were airing that episode, we saw Esoterica had, you know, just... just Do- Dr. Justin Sledge. Yeah, he, him and... Uh, the coolest name on the internet. <laughs> him and Marco... Visconti, I want to say, yeah, the name. They were discussing the subject of Liber Semek, and uh, that was coincidental. Like it wasn't uh, my suggestion of Liber Semek wasn't prompted by that. My suggestion was prompted by the fact that it was the one that kind of clicked it off for me, uh, and made me realize that there was something to magic that was deeper than just you know a bunch of nonsense or a bunch of spooky shit. Well, talk about that. How did you uh, how, how did you come across the ritual, and what what was it about it that you thought popped? Yeah, well, the uh, I I found it in um, the Lon Milo Duquette book. We were talking about that, the magic of Aleister Crowley, and I had picked that book up off the shelf in an Indigo chapters, and uh, this is before I knew anything about Thelema. And I only had an association of Crowley from years back when I'd read some lurid thing about him being a Satanist who had killed a cat nine times and stole, uh, run off with some school teacher to diddle. And uh, <laughs> you know all this, all this horrible. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, and he joined a satanic group called the Golden Dawn, and all this sort of thing. So that's my association I had. 
And um, I got this book just because it was like, oh, that looks like fun to fuck around with. So, uh, you know, figuring, well, it's going to have this weird magic stuff going on in it. And it reminded me of when I was younger, around that same time I'd learned about that lurid stuff uh, about Aleister Crowley. I had been reading the Necronomicon, you know, that cheeseball book that you see in (laughs) also in Indigo Chapters. (laughs) So I had read that and that was really fascinating and I wanted to mess around with that at the time. And I loved, I was just such a, you know, taken with the idea of being able to, you know... Uh, create a portal to the moon and then to the planets beyond and in this kind of weird, you know, magic kind of idea that I had in my head. Uh, though I had no idea. <laughs> I, I thought it was like kind of out there to expect to get silver plates to make the sigils on and all mm-hmm. this sort of thing. So, um, but um, fast forward to when I found this other book, I, uh, I pretty much was in that same frame of mind of like, oh, this is neat. I'll fuck around with this. And it was kind of like very different from my normal life. Cause I was very into the idea of filmmaking and stuff at the time. And I was actually super, uh, materialistic, I guess, in mm-hmm. that kind of frame of mind where I was, uh, distanced from my spirituality for a little while there while I was getting into film and stuff. And I, I started to really acutely feel that and uh, getting depressed and just feeling like, you know, lacking something or feeling divorced from something meaningful, um, which gradually I ended up having to address. But when I got this book to just basically fuck around with, I was reading it. It had all of Lon Milo Duquette's kind of apologetic apolo- apologia <laughs> of uh, um, Crowley. And, and uh, I had, you know, at the time I was kind of like, I thought it was kind of ridiculous that he's like, you know, it just seemed like jumping into a conversation midstream. <laughs> so, um, and then, you know, trying to f- look at the the lesser banishing ritual and all this sort of thing. And like, I had no idea what it was all for. And I was like, okay, how does this fuck with things? <laughs> so did you start practicing it right away when you saw that in that book and you wanted to mess with it? Did you start trying to trying to read some of these names or do little bits and pieces? Yeah, it was very confusing because I had no idea how to pronounce the names and, you know, all this. I didn't know what it was for. And Mm -hmm. I I guess, I don't know how closely I was actually reading it or if I was just trying to impose my own expectations onto it or what. But uh, point being, Libra Semek is also provided in that book and it's not provided until a little later on. So um, by the time I'd gotten to it, I think I'd even read the Book of the Law by that point. Oh, okay. Because he has the full Book of the Law in that book. And uh, it, it he warned that, you know, it had that um, comment at the end that this, you know, you, you should burn this copy after reading and uh, uh, people who study the book uh, should be avoided as centers of pestilence. And uh, so I basically decided to just read it. I almost kind of went in, I, I basically figured I was only going to read it once. Uh, because mm-hmm. of this yeah, caveat. Yeah, not study it. And uh, <laughs> so uh, I read it almost in a trance, not really understanding it, but kind of like just letting it wash over me. And uh, that was interesting. But then by the time I got to eventually to Lieber Semek, uh, I remember like, you know, reading through the ritual and being a little confused about things generally, but then reading the commentary on the ritual and he starts getting particularly when he gets into... The stuff about uh, the firmament is, mm-hmm. you know, he's relating this to the mind and uh, he's relating the, what is upon the earth or under the earth on dry land or in the water on dry land is, uh, you know, material objects that are beyond your 
sensorial reach, and mm. then in the water is within your sensorial reach. I, at least I'm just sort of paraphrasing uh, and taking a shot at getting that right. But uh, yeah, this sort of thing st- suddenly made me think, oh, okay, this isn't just, you know, flighty stuff. He's actually correlating this to uh, mental experience and essentially to philosophy. And right. that's what made me initially start to think of it as like sort of a a practical form of philosophy yeah. in a sense. Yeah. No, that's, uh, that's, that is an interesting piece of what's going on here because um, we've discussed some stuff uh, in the last couple of months that, that really talks about, um, uh, regards spirits sort of as spirits and defends, um, you know, defends the idea that Iowa's deserves the name of a god, you know, mm-hmm. because, uh, um, and here trying to get in touch with the holy guardian angel, we read in other places in like magic without tears and stuff. Uh, there's a chapter that says, no, the holy guardian angel is not your higher self. Yeah. And, uh, and he's, he's, his first thing, his first problem with that is he says like, in what way higher? Like what, like, mm. like define your terms. What does higher mean? Yeah. <laughs> um, and then later on he takes up this idea of what is the self. Um, but in here it's much more, um, it's almost pseudo psychological kind of, yeah. you know, where most memorably the HGA is, uh, myself made perfect. Mm-hmm. And then later on it talks about how the HGA is the self without restrictions mm-hmm. like those natural uh instincts the the source of inspiration the uh, the inspiration for all all movement without the neuroses and complexes and yeah. like uh and conscious goals in yeah. the way just pure the pure volition that yeah. that that integrated self so i start to I, I i like the chapter in magic without tears that ends with this uh really kind of like um it sounds like that uh, uh it's a wonderful life where maybe the holy guardian angel is a, a human who's passed on from that stage mm-hmm. of incarnation and now his next job is to work with a client on earth and you know uh and it, it allows for that possibility but in here uh the way he's talking about it it is maybe maybe the problem is the word higher yeah. not the world world self you know cuz higher comes with all these moral implications yeah um and uh and this is a a, a self without that kind of well, you know, this uh, needs to transcend that kind of judgment, that kind of judging, yeah, judging thing. Not only that, but if anything, this is um, unifying yourself with the unconscious, if you want to look at it from the way he's structuring it as a psychological kind of model. Yeah, there's that element of it, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I wish that um, I had come across it maybe earlier than I did. Uh, this really is presented as a ritual, at least reading it on its own, uh, for attaining K and C. Um, mm-hmm. And if I if I didn't already know that, in the, at least in the AA process, and then also in the 
book of Abramelin, both the French and German versions, you're supposed to learn to pray from the heart. So you don't use a structured prayer. You have mm-hmm. to... It's like a spontaneous... Um, kind of. uh, yeah, so you, you're... Your prayer should be honest and in your own language, and and you know, sort of spontaneous. And you can and you compose it as you go. You know, you add things and you remove things based on how you feel. And it does end up being a written prayer by the end of the ritual, the way Admiral Mullen teaches it. But you shouldn't. Um, but he, the reason he doesn't teach the form of the prayer is he doesn't want it to be formalized. Mm-hmm. He wants it to come from your heart. Yeah, and then. Uh, in the AA system, it's a little bit different. You use a structured ritual, but you've done enough ritual practice up to five six that you can design your own ritual. So mm-hmm. people aren't meant to really use this as their HGA ritual. And so I, I kind of gave this a miss the first time I read it. You know, I maybe practiced, performed it a couple of times, but not mm-hmm. deeply. Um, but I think if I if I'd been less uh, sort of conditioned to ignore it and and done it more i might have gotten more out of it because the last uh couple of months of doing it daily and sometimes twice daily uh it's been really great like i felt uh i felt a strong sort of um uh sense of momentum especially the first couple of days i i was taller (laughs) <laughs> like, I'm not I'm not a tall guy. I'm like 5'10". And I was taking myself to the movies and I was walking down uh, Bloor Street, a main, a main road in Toronto, you know, middle of the night, but passing people, you know, every few steps. And I was making a point to look, at looking people in the eye. And I was taller than every single person on, <laughs> on the street <laughs> at 5'10". You know, I, w- I was taller than six foot guys. <laughs> it was very... Uh, very weird experience to be the biggest guy in the room. But, uh, um, and then, you know, it kind of got a little bit mundane for a while. And then in in the last couple of days, I've been having great experiences too. Mm -hmm. I've also been, because of the way um, we talked about the reception of the Book of the Law a couple of months ago, and Crowley says he used the airy portion of this to show Rose the sylphs in the Great Pyramid. And uh, and so I, I had been assigned some elemental evocations to do anyway. Um, so I was using for a while, not doing the full ritual, but using just the elemental cool. elemental prayers, and found that really helpful for getting through into something mm. uh, uh, something quite profound in terms of my uh, the elemental work that I was doing. So I mean, it's great. It's great, and it really um, even if it's not your HGA ritual. It does put you in contact with that kind of energy, yeah. Uh, especially if you do the visions the way he, you know, rather than just reading the text, if you do the visualizations the way yeah. he says to do, um, it really starts to pop. Yeah, and I was kind of thinking, uh, because of the nature of this ritual and the commentary that goes with it and everything else, uh, the way it's structured, we're probably going to be jumping around a little bit. Um, sure. And I'm thinking, actually, I wouldn't mind skipping to uh, one little section here. I think it's in part three. Yeah. And uh, it's the effect the ritual has, which it's itemized from A to E. And uh, this is is probably a good thing to start with initially just because it breaks down what the purpose of the various parts of this ritual are. 
this might get us a little bit closer to a general view. Sure. So we got one of the effects of the ritual is to keep the mind and the various parts of the mind and the soul so busy with their own work that they cease to distract the adept. Uh, so this is like, you know, you're, you're pretty much separating your body of light from your uh, physical body in the very beginning of the ritual uh, after having done some banishing and, and uh, cleansing of the space and all that sort of thing. And then you're uh, using your body of light to do the ritual in. And then from there, your body of light, you can visualize um, at various points throughout the ritual. Even that kind of like, you know, different sheaths as, of your of yourself, as he puts it, that um, that are becoming separated. And you're pretty much busying them all in one thing or another. And uh, also the next thing is to separate them so completely that the soul is stripped of its sheaths. Okay, that's exactly what I was just sort of referring to. <laughs> then to arouse in him an enthusiasm so intense as to intoxicate and anesthetize him that he may not feel and resent the agony of this spiritual vivisection. Just as bashful lovers get drunk on the wedding night in order to brazen out the intensity of shame which so mysteriously coexists with their desire. That's, uh, thank you for reading that. I mean, continue to read this, but I, I'm sort of uh, embarrassed to admit that I sometimes kind of felt that I was falling asleep, you know, like, uh, and this happens to me sometimes because being a parent, you're just always tired. So I'll be doing some meditation work and I'll be like, that break was, that was a really weird psychedelic break. Did I fall asleep? Like, or like, I won't remember a section and I'll be like, was that sleep? But, uh, but today the, the sort of sleepiness that I experienced didn't feel like passing out. It felt like, uh, um, it felt like, losing you know he talks about defending yourself against the angel like yeah. the angel comes in and you have to fight it and fight to keep your your own consciousness independent mm -hmm. like there was this emptiness coming into me not even just at the climax of the ritual but at various points during the um the elemental portions and some of the barbarous names or something where i would just like Dis, uh, disappear for a while before the <laughs> breaks came up and this idea that the ritual is designed to anesthetize you yeah <laughs> you know that's a it's a um and there's a couple of a, other places where he specifically coincidental word yeah he references that kind of experience as well mm -hmm. as being possibly key to the ritual right. essentially so that's good that's a good sign um the next item up for bid is uh to concentrate the necessary spiritual forces from every element and fling them simultaneously into the aspiration towards the holy guardian angel. Pardon me, what what section are we in? Uh, you said uh, section three, but I have my sections lettered. Um, oh, it's point three, scolion on sections G and GG. Ah, uh, okay. Big G, little G. Oh, I don't have a point three. Oh. Yeah, no, it's okay. Okay. Carry well, on. Yeah, fair <laughs> enough. Uh, there was basically concentrating each of the elements and that's the the bulk of the ritual is going around the circle to each of the quarters as you mentioned like it starts with air and uh, we then proceed to fire water and earth and uh, we're invoking each of those elements 
um, so that we're basically getting the complete picture in that sense. And then finally, spirit, both active to begin with and then passive to, to close with. And we're concentrating all of that in a, into our aspiration towards the angel. Um, and then finally, to attract the angel by the vibration of the magical voice which invokes him. This is the basic purpose or effect of the ritual, of doing this ritual. This is kind of like why we're doing all of this stuff, which is kind of a nice thing to start with because otherwise, you know, um, it's a little unclear. Yeah, here's something I had marked out to read from section G, the last paragraph of section G. But this is a side issue. The main purpose of the ritual is to establish the relation of the subconscious self with the angel in such a way that the adept is aware that his angel is the unity which expresses the sum of the elements of that self, that his normal consciousness contains alien elements introduced by accidents of environment, and that his knowledge and conversation of his holy guardian angel destroys all doubt and delusion and confers all blessing, teaches all truth, contains all delights. But it is important that the adept should not rest in mere inexpressible realization of this rapture, but rouse himself to make the relation submit to analysis, to render it in rational terms and thereby to enlighten his mind, his heart, in a sense as superior to fanatical enthusiasm as Beethoven's music is to West African drums. And I, I take that, you know, people uh, hand wave that last bit as sort of like casual uh, racism. But all of anything I found on the uh, Internet that talked about West African jam was specifically the, the djembe, which has, you know, mm -hmm. basic six basic strokes. You come yeah. to play the djembe, and it's one instrument. Uh, you you know, I imagine you could play it as part of a choir or something. But the the harmonic nuance of a Beethoven symphony, you know, maybe the word superior, you don't like it. But uh, technical complexity, let's say. <laughs> yeah, you want to... Uh, um, you don't want to just let this sweep you away in a, uh, with a sort of sort of passion the way drumming does. Drumming builds you up and you know it, it impacts you emotionally. But the um, the nuance of, of Beethoven's music also very emotional. But you um, there's a very precise sort of harmonic structure and and, mm. uh, and going from movement to movement. So being able to understand. Uh, this experience. But let's uh, look at the first sentence of this again. The main purpose of the ritual to establish the relation of the subconscious self with the angel. So uh, you're right here to mention the subconscious, mm -hmm. this deep, uh, the, this deep self where let's imagine, you know, I said last week that uh, subconscious doesn't mean anything. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, Let's imagine the subconscious is instincts, drives, intuitions, um, you know, these, these things that inform, these activities that inform thoughts. Mm -hmm. you know? I like uh, Sartre uh, says, uh, there are no subconscious thoughts, because what it means to have a thought is just to <laughs> be conscious of an idea. But there are subconscious activities, you mm -hmm. know, and so you're putting the angel in relationship with the sub, these these activities that inform thought and the consequence of this should be that the conscious self 
the, the conscious self becomes aware that normal consciousness contains alien enemies introduced by accidents of the environment. So um, that there are impurities in the conscious self that interfere with full realization Mm-hmm. of the self actually it's weird that i mentioned sartre because the um because this this uh, doctrine of uh existentialist authenticity you know it's in in this sort of paragraph that's it's sort of mm-hmm. like what it's pointing at that the angel should tell you um that you have alien elements in your consciousness and begin to explain how to shake those Mm-hmm. out which is why they need to be analyzed carefully like a a, a complex orchestral harmony yeah I, I, Crowley says in in somewhere in here that uh, this requires um, an advanced level of initiation and what he's getting at there is you want to uh, really know yourself and know your own as he might put it complexes for instance mm-hmm. um, and uh, your own psychological makeup and uh, your reactions to things and all these sorts of things for this very reason that you want to uh, you're trying to dedicate everything towards this same single aspiration and in order to do that uh, this is what initiation part of what initiation entails is that know thyself process which I think like, you know, sometimes I've heard stories of people picking up this ritual and then doing it as if, you know, just out of nowhere, just jumping in and doing it and then getting some kind of crazy results and whatnot. And uh, I don't know, you know, I mean, for one thing, it sounds like they're doing it like a one-off thing and then suddenly this crazy thing happens. It's That sounds to me like they have their preconceptions about what the ritual is that don't necessarily, like maybe they haven't read it deeply. Mm-hmm. And not only that, but Crowley at the end of this specifically says, let the adept perform this for uh, one moon once a day and then two moons twice a day, three moons three times a day, four moons four times a day and then one moon the final moon just constantly in in uh, dedication yeah so he describes something like the uh, abermelon operation you know the slow building up increasing frequency of prayer mm-hmm. um, and instructs the adept to do that using this ritual which is different than the instructions he gives other places where it says that he should that you should you should design your own so yeah anyway I, I think it's really um, it would be sort of neat to you know come into this and just and just start doing this <laughs> this ritual and see where it led you without having to worry about all the other labor involved in the AA process or in the Abramelin process. You know, just take this as it is and uh, see what you can do with it as a as a, as an aspirant because uh, it's one it's one possibility. It seems like. Mm-hmm. Um, incidentally, if you're uh, patient enough, uh, he does make reference in one of the notes to a chapter of Liber Aleph. And um, I don't think I ever bothered to check it up before we decided to actually do this. So uh, uh, it's pretty short. So uh, if you don't mind, I wouldn't mind reading through it. By all means. It's very pertinent to the subject. So uh, uh, if we can put it in the frame of mind of the uh, subconscious, the uh, Delta Zeta, um, which is like in the general sort of Liber Left book. It's, ah, look at that, page number 111. And it's De Wiris Magnanimis 
Amore per i clarissimis, or on great men famous in love. Know that in the mind of man is much wisdom that is hidden, being the treasure of his sire that he inheriteth. Thus nigh all of his moral nature is unknown to him until his puberty. That is, this nature pertaineth not unto the recording and judging apparatus of his brain until it is put therein by the stirring of that deeper nature within him. Thou wilt mark also that great men are commonly great lovers, and this is in part because of their general exuberance of energy, but in part also because, consciously or not, they are aware of this secret following, that every act of love communicateth somewhat of the wisdom stored within him to his percipient mind. Yet must such act be done rightly, according to art, and unless such act is of profit alike to mind and body, it is an error. This, then, is true doctrine, which, if it be understanded right of thee, shall make diamond clear thy path and love, which, to them that know this not, is so obscure and perilous that I believe there is not one man in ten thousand that cometh not to misadventure therein. So this relates to what he's talking about in Liber Semek, about the idea of um, th this uh, attainment of knowledge and conversation is like uh, it, it uh, confers occult puberty uh, comparable to uh, physical puberty. It's uh, you're a child growing up and you're in that state of mind that's before those hormones start kicking in and that sort of thing. And what puberty... Uh, puts on you that that innate kind of uh, he might he calls it wisdom that uh, starts to come forth from your inner being. Um, this is like uh, this is a direct drawing of a line between those two things between that physical puberty and this is an a, an uh, occult puberty. Yeah, that's that's great. And he says that the moral nature is not known until puberty and until that time mm. it sort of resides in the subconscious and is uh is sort of released in the uh yeah uh, in, in the pubescent stage when one comes to terms with their moral nature as they come up through the pubescent stage and um i've just i've just heard you read it once i wasn't thinking about that passage all week um but what is it about puberty that uh, that inspires us to reflect on our moral nature. Moral has a weird connotation yeah. in Thelema. You know, uh, most people are going to think they mean sort of like ethical codes. Yeah. Um, uh, morality is the innate sense of what's right and wrong, and then the ethic is like the um, the written <laughs> the written code of conduct. Uh, I might have that backwards. It always, my instinct <laughs> is to think of it as the other way. So maybe I, but, uh, but in Thelema, the moral nature is, is something more like the volition, you know, the drive for movement, right? Because like in Magic Without Tears, uh, selfishness is the highest moral principle, um, because if you're selfish and you take care of all, of all your own needs, it means other people don't have to look after you, yeah. uh, at least in part. And also because if you're selfish and you um, 
and you work on exalting yourself, then you become the best version of yourself, and that is just an inherent good. You know, mm-hmm. it, um, uh, selfishness doesn't necessarily mean like stealing and committing other sorts of atrocities. It's like being self-oriented to uh, and disciplined and and working towards excellence and can also mean mind your own business for one thing sure i think people tend to forget about as well uh and so i think the moral nature has some the reason the moral nature is related to puberty here is has something to do uh with sex drive and sexual awakening yeah and and then he goes on to talk about how great men are often great lovers um what more profound instinct do we have in terms of being put in relation with other people you know, having to, having to deal with another person for one of your basic animal needs. You know, yeah. you can eat on your own. You can sleep on your own. But sex is something that requires being put in social context in a very profound way. Yeah. And so this has a moral dimension in not just the Thelemic uh, definition, but in the, in the traditional way that people imagine that word. There's a sex morality that we we learn by relating to other people. And then also, you know, your uh, procreative duties, which I think Crowley thinks we have, you know. I mean, not everyone is going to want to have kids, mm-hmm. but uh, but I think Crowley believes that progenitating is a vital... <laughs> Holy shit, <laughs> Progeny. That, that progeny development. Re- that reproducing, having children <laughs> Processing is, uh, progeny. is... is, is uh, fundamental drive that that we all sort of share yeah. too so now i'd like to point out that uh yesed is very important here and i think we'll we'll see more of that coming up as we continue the discussion but i just want to bring it up now yesed being the ninth sephira on the tree of life and um, we have associations there where there's it's impinging on the physical body and it's uh it's where we get a lot of these sex instincts and a lot of the subconscious and a lot of these concepts developing. Yeah, this is it. Oh, man, so cool. Yeah, so you in the AA system, you worked your way up the tree of life from Malkuth to Yesod to Hod to Netzach. Uh, and then you go back down into Yesod to climb the middle pillar to get to, to Fereth. And that middle pillar is Semech. Yeah, is the path of Semech, which is the Liber Semech, right? But you, they're bringing that up in the context of the unconscious. Gives me a new thought, which mm. I've never had before, that that uh, yes. Yesud is Ruach. Like it is, there is, it, it is, um, you are conscious of the things that happen in Yesud, um, but it's the, it's the, the part of Ruach that's closest to Nefesh. And even some of the Nefesh functions come up into, into Yesod. Yeah, like you could say the like, face of the waters, like in uh, Genesis or something like that. Yeah, like specifically in in philosophy, one of the ways you might think of philosophy is that you work with uh, intuitions. Um, and you, you think, what are my intuitions? And then you chase the intuitions to the ends and find contradictions. And intuitions are not like instincts. They're trainable, but they're um, often uninterrogated. And so Yesod is the place where these, maybe some of these intuitions might lie on the, you know, the shore between Ruach and uh, Nefesh. Nefesh. Yeah. So, um, so the idea that we have to, we have to try to meet our holy guardian angel there mm-hmm. so that, um, like I've described before, the, um, 
the Neshima and the Nefesh can make direct, <laughs> uh, can, can be brought into direct communication with the, uh, with the ego, the, the Ruach, yeah. uh, you know, can step back and give them some time, some time to talk. Uh, yeah, it's really, uh, yeah, anyway, you, cool. Yeah, yeah this, <laughs> this, this Yasod thing uh, is, is more fun than I thought. Yeah, this is one of those things. It's, I love I love these discussions because it gives us a like I I never went over this with a fine tooth comb and just you know I'd read over it. Like I said, I never followed up the uh, reference to Lieber left. So it's so much fun to dig deeper and make these discoveries. Yeah, so we're talking a little bit about how this works on a kind of epistemological level. Like, what does it mean in relation to you know? how we think, uh, how we experience our thoughts, our psychology. What are some other things that I can read that talk about that? Much of what I've marked out has been about Thelemic metaphysics and about the nature of the HGA itself. But I'm just trying to find some more stuff on psychology, since that's where we seem to have started. There is a note that's... Um... Yeah, that's just uh, basically it'll be probably the last page of the ritual itself. Um, it's just before the the attainment. Mm -hmm. um, there's in the in the passive spirit invocation, and just at the end of that, there's um, reference to hell. Mm. And this is a aipe, the word aipe. If you want to, you know, I'm usually. <laughs> uh, vibrating it in my body of light, and I don't really just say it conversationally, right. so that sounds a little weird. But the uh, his uh, sort of etymological definition is uh, "thou exalted one." It, and then he has a little bracketed off part. Uh, it leaps up. It leaps forth. But the bracketed part is, i.e., the spiritual quote unquote semen. The adept's secret ideas drawn irresistibly from their quote unquote hell by the love of his angel and then he's got a note to go with that that uh, it is said among men that the word hell deriveth from the word helen to heal or conceal in the tongue of the anglo-saxons heal or conceal is like from oh. um, and uh, that is it is the concealed place which since all things are in thine own self is the unconscious. Oh, so you mentioned it is said among men. I was about to make fun of that uh, useless <laughs> citation, uh, but he probably means something to do with the, uh, is it serial killer? <laughs> that makes you We Neither of us are. As far as I know. Well, I'm a second degree Mason. Oh, are you? Fact, okay, yeah. so you would be. You're, you you know what this means then. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's why I know the reference. <laughs> I see. Uh, uh, well, don't tell anyone. <laughs> Certainly not. <laughs> you don't need to broadcast that sort of thing. Uh, um, yeah. So th uh, that hell derives from heal. It is the place uh, where since all things that I know, it is the unconscious. Uh yeah, what do we want to say about that? The, the idea of hell ideas. being the unconscious is, uh, again, building on this. You know, it was a neat discovery. Uh, if I want to, and I apologize, I feel, I'm trying to make room to keep the discussion. I don't want to just take over, but, you know, I might as well follow <laughs> out this, this subject while we're on it. 
he's relating the idea of hell to the the unconscious and that sort of thing. As I was mentioning with Yesod, uh, in the in the oath at the beginning of this ritual, we have just after thou art uh, Asaron Nefer, myself made perfect. Um, there's thou art Ia Bes, uh, which uh, the pronunciation it's it B E S Z, and then Ia Apophras, which also ends with an S Z, uh, and. Those two, I happened to stumble across just uh, a couple days ago. They uh, appear in the Neophyte Ritual, as printed in the uh, Equinox Volume 1, Number 2. Oh, okay, cool. And uh, they appear, uh, okay, in the Neophyte Ritual, the temple is laid out just as you've described it, where you're working up the tree. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's that lower half of the tree below... Um, below Tifereth and below the Vale of Paroketh. So the Vale of Paroketh would be the far east wall. And then we'd have all the the uh, lower Sephiroth. So uh, uh, Netzach, Hod, uh, Yesod, and Malkuth all sort of working their way westward. And uh, in Yesod, in the Neophyte ritual, you will, if you check out the Equinox, you will find that uh, there... On, on the floor plan are located three devils. There's, uh, there's Bez, Applefras, and Satan slash Typhon. Oh. Which is really interesting. Hmm. And so we have two of those devils. And uh, why two? Well, I mean, we could debate about that, but I mean, everything else in the oath is asserting duality. Right. So it seems like that's an important factor for sure. Uh, and this, uh, they become the sacrament, right? So Bez is the, what is, is Bez the ideas or the, the, the actions? Let me see here. Uh, cause, uh, yeah. Be, so Bez is the matter that destroys Godhead, uh, destroys and devours Godhead for the purpose of incarnating any God. Mm-hmm. And, uh, Apophras is the motion that destroys and devours Godhead for the purpose of creating any god. And then uh, the matter becomes the bread of the sacrament and the motion uh, becomes the wine of the, of the sacrament. Mm-hmm. Um, we have in Liber L, it says, uh, uh, I am divided for love's sake, for the chance of union. This explains the creation you know, of, of the cosmos, right? Because we have this pregnant nothing, this uh, nuit entity, the, the sky mother, sort of. And, uh, and why is there anything? Well, there is anything, because without it, we couldn't experience ecstasy. And so this seems like a perfectly lovely picture. But we also have in Liverell no, uh, the, the god of this aeon uh, saying, know first that I am a god of war and vengeance and I shall deal hardly with them. So the violence is also a fundamental metaphysical <laughs> principle. And in, in this ritual, we see, uh, we talked a lot about self, not self duality and how uh, over the past year and in, and how in marrying them we obliterate both and you know the the crossing of the abyss seems like this except for the demon there's all this peaceful it's sort of a peaceful experience of non-existence mm-hmm. but in this ritual in a little in little bits and pieces we start seeing some of this viol- violence start to percolate through in the way in which it's essential because mm-hmm. without these demons destroying and devouring godhead you know with a uh, consuming uh, dividing 
um, we don't get the incarnations of individual gods. And uh, the part of the point of that is that in this ritual, that the god is the is the adept, the human being, <laughs> you know, mm. rising himself to or opening himself up to receive. The angel, I shouldn't say raising. Well, you know, it's interesting to think of it uh, like when we develop this picture of Yesod becoming so important, as you were sort of saying, it's like you work your way up those Sephiroth and then you're going back down to Yesod. Well, the path of Samak is uh, also attributed to Sagittarius and which is the 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 bowman, the uh, the one with the arrow, the bow and arrows. And so you could kind of, uh, I'm picturing in meditating on this idea, I'm, I was picturing kind of drawing back that bow mm-hmm. and you're drawing that down into Yesod and into the unconscious so that you can fire it up into the sun. Yeah, the, it's because um, we do talk about the arrow of the aspiration, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but it, it's tough to know quite how to draw the metaphor, you know, because in this ritual, we, we, you know, we extend the phallus up into the heavens as far as we can. Um, and then, uh, and then retreat down into the, into the root of the phallus. It says the, uh, the dual self. And then the, and then because of the vacuum we've created, the angel rushes in and we're forced to defend ourselves. More of that violence coming through. Mm-hmm. And there's a reason we defend ourselves. Uh, which I think has something to do with uh, with fullness of integration. You know, if um, in the crossing of the abyss, it's your responsibility to release, uh, to not have thoughts, to not follow Karanzan, um, to just like let it go and 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 drift and 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 attain non-existence. Whereas in this ritual, you're further down the tree, you're not as fully developed, fully integrated. You're just beginning that process in, in, in meeting your angel, beginning, as it says, uh, to, to your unconscious is, your, your angel is, is showing your unconscious the way in which your conscious mind contains alien elements. So you're, you're not really ready to let everything go yet because you, you haven't fully understood and integrated. So in this ritual... Um, the, the force of the ritual needs to be so strong. Uh, the onrush of the angel needs to be so violent that you can't defend yourself Mm. against it. And that's something that you develop through practice, but you will then single out elements as the angel comes in and conquers territory. You single out areas of consciousness, build walls and try to protect them. And that allows you to identify areas of consciousness. You know, it, it, the, the, the completion of the of the invasion is accomplished by, you know, defending this citadel and that citadel and that citadel and that citadel until all of the citadels have fallen. If you surrender them, then the conflict doesn't need to continue, you know, and so you might maintain control over certain spots. But if you never surrender, then the enemy needs to obliterate you completely. <laughs> and uh, in um, uh, Libra 65, the angel, there's uh, euphemisms all over the place, like a cancer that eats into the blood or like the venom of the fang of mm. the... Um, uh, um, Apep, uh, is it Apep, the serpent? Yeah, that yeah. sounds about right. Um, anyway, here, the combined action of these two devils, again, uh, Bez and Apophras, uh, is to allow 
the God upon whom they pray to enter into enjoyment of existence through the sacrament of individual life and love. Um, individual, I, at first I thought that just meant individual, like maybe he was being fancy, <laughs> but maybe individual, like divided yeah. life and love. That the, well, like that you somehow said, the, the, the unconscious is like not individual in the mm-hmm. sense that it's kind of a continuum, I guess you could say. And so this is by becoming conscious, it becomes like the nature of creating these mental thoughts and structures and things is based on the idea of individuality mm-hmm. and that. So, uh, yeah. And, um, actually we have here a little bit of a reflection of the, the, the earliest, the, the early, early creation myth where the twin of man is, is, is torn apart to create the cosmos, right? Because these devour God, so some of God is eaten and uh, and presumably excreted. Some of God is destroyed, so presumably torn apart and thrown to the corners, mm-hmm. you know. And so the these demons are um, are are creating the earth by destroying, just creating the cosmos, the world, the earth by destroying uh, Godhead, but then Godhead. Uh, but then, then the individual God is also striving to unite. And so we, we, we have this picture already of divided for love's sake for the chance of union. Mm-hmm. But what reading this ritual starts to make it clear to me is that this is not a process of like in the Bible where man is kicked out of Eden and then eventually the, you know, the second Jerusalem falls from heaven and, and becomes the bride of Christ. And then everybody's happy. This is like a a constant churning, burning process of uh, uh, of of new division and new devouring and new excretion, mm-hmm. and then and then new sort of fierce aspiration and 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 union. That it's a that the there's a continuing spiritual well, that, churn. This sounds like there's even like an actual death as you unify with the angel, mm-hmm. you know? So, uh, um, it, and that, I think that's kind of a lower level reflection of what you would look forward to becoming a master of the temple as well. All of this seems very master of the temple which is like <laughs> figuring out the ways in which it's different is important, right? Mm-hmm. So like you defend yourself against the onslaught of the angel rather than refusing to, to combat Karanzon and letting yourself go. Yeah. Um, uh, these little distinctions are important because otherwise, uh, so much of this language starts to seem mm-hmm. the same, right? Well, I mean, in, in some of Crowley's commentary in Libra 65, he also talks about, uh, uh, like these, he's comparing, I think there's one point when he's talking about fire where he's referring to stages of the, like he's more related to the master of the temple and he's, he's sort of comparing the master of the temple process to the, uh, the, knowledge and conversation and pretty much saying like, I couldn't see the knowledge and conversation, you know, somebody going too far wrong to the point where they couldn't, you know, readjust and and try again at a later time. But with the uh, master of the temple, it's a different story altogether. That's right. Yeah. Um, And even here, uh, if you, um, if you fail to fully defend your citadel, if you surrender at any point and, and an atom of consciousness uh, remains untested, um, then that atom of consciousness 
uh, he says it, it it has the potential to throw the whole thing well, off kilter. If nothing you know, else, it stains the <laughs> the bridal bed. You know, like uh, um, almost in the same way, he talks about the the holding back one drop of blood in the body. You yeah. know, initially you may seem like a master of the temple, but you you retain some of these hangups. Mm-hmm. But again, there's a there's a difference here, which you're right to point to. Yeah, so here's here's what we've been talking about. Um, now let him strive with all the strength of his soul to withstand the will of his angel, conceal himself in the closest cell of the citadel of consciousness. Let him consecrate himself to resist the assault of the voice and the vibration until his consciousness faint away into nothing. For if there abide, unabsorbed, even one single atom of the false ego, that atom should stain the virginity, you're right, stain the marriage bed, should stain the virginity of the true self and profane the oath. Then the atom should be so inflamed by the approach of the angel that it should overwhelm the rest of the mind, tyrannize over it, and become an insane despot to the total ruin of the realm." So, you know, sounds like very much like what he was describing with Black Brothers, right? But he goes on. But all being dead to sense, who then is able to strive against the angel? He shall intensify the stress of his spirit so that his loyal legion of lion serpents leap from the ambush, awakening the adept to witness their will and sweep him with them in their enthusiasm so that he shall consciously partake of their purpose and seize in its simplicity the solution of all his perplexities. So there's this warning of, you know, what if if an iota of consciousness remains, it becomes a tyrant and and, and throws off the whole opera to the blasphemy against the whole operation. But then like, no, no, like, but you you know, you can't, you can't, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, because the angel has an army of lion serpents <laughs> and uh, and if the operation is, a, is properly performed, it'll just, you know, it'll just sweep away all of all of consciousness. So, mm-hmm. you so, you know, it's much, much less of a of a worry. Yeah. I mean, this whole idea, if it is um, if one way of looking at it is to unify with the unconscious or the subconscious, then uh um, that kind of makes a lot of sense, right? Like you're not going to be able to do, you're not going to be able to be really conscious. <laughs> That's the whole idea. Yeah. Well, let's let's try to uh, um, get get this right. At least based on what we've read so far, it's the idea that the that the angel uh, unifies with the unconscious, so that then the conscious will can be a formed, informed of. of um, impurities within, like within the normal consciousness. So it, it's it's not that the conscious mind gets integrated with the unconscious mind, and and you no longer have a subconscious. It's that there's uh, the the influence of uh, of Tefereth, but really of the supernals is is now communicating down there with the animal soul. Well, I think that's the the tricky thing here is that I don't know that it's uh, I don't know because <laughs> that's I, I think both things are not mutually exclusive. Like I said, based on what we read so far, yeah. there that there there might be more in here that uh, uh, 
um, defends what, what you're saying. Because I, I think I think there's a natural tendency to map these things out just the way that you're saying. Mm-hmm. Like what you're saying does make total sense. I'm just basically um, not a hundred percent clear that it's as linear and mapped out mm-hmm. as that. You know what I mean? It's like it's sort of like. Um, just because when we visualize the tree, we see the unconscious coming up from Yesud, uh, that's just tied in with your mental kind of conception of the tree, right? Whereas the way that it's coming down from Kether as well, I just don't feel like it's, um, I don't think it's an either or situation, basically. The- I, I don't just, have a complete backup for that yet, but. <laughs> I just watched this movie, uh, Lucy. Yeah. Uh, where it's basically flowers for Algernon, but like with gangsters. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that gangsters make everything better. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they repeat in the film this fallacy that humans only use 10% of their brains. Um, and then Lucy takes a drug by accident and can use 67% of her brain or something. And then yeah. like, then she can melt computers and turn them into a black goo and build supercomputers and you know all sorts of crazy she can hear people's thoughts and remember her pre-birth and all sorts of this stuff and uh i remember the, when people believed this and 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 stuff. the thing is we use a hundred percent of our brains mm-hmm. evolution is very evolution would 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 eliminate anything we didn't need and so uh fully integrating the consciousness with the unconscious would mean like that you had to consciously digest your own food and balance your endocrine system and like beat your own heart. And there are yogis who claim that they can do this, but they do it voluntarily. And so like maybe, you know, there's there there are uh, places where spiritually this sort of thing starts to happen. Um, but this is the thing. I'm like I think sure even it's... that language of uh, unifying the conscious with the unconscious is just a convenience. Mm-hmm. That's part of the problem, I think, is that it's not um, it's not necessarily a literal description of what's happening, but it's one that he's been using. Well, let's try to find some places where he uses it. We go through here. Can you point to um, an example of where he's like, for instance, just to just to compare? Um, yeah. I'm suggesting that he hasn't really talked about things coming down from Kether and uh, from Tifereth per se. Uh, uh, can you find something to back up your argument? Oh well, let's see here. Uh, the main purpose of this ritual is to stab- establish the relation of the subconscious self with the angel in such a way that the adept is aware that his angel is the unity which is expressed in the sum of the elements of the self, and that his normal consciousness contains alien elements uh, introduced by the accidents of his environment. So what I'm saying is that uh, he says the, um, the relation of the subconscious self, like you're saying, subconscious self, that's very important, but with the angel... Not, mm-hmm. not with the conscious self. So he's not saying self. they're one, the same thing. It, it, so the, so he, he's putting the angel in relationship with the subconscious self, not the subconscious self in relationship with the conscious self. Yeah. The conscious self becomes aware that the angel is the total self, mm-hmm. um, and that, and by comparing the the angel with the conscious self, can then realize that the conscious self contains impurities. Because the total self 
is missing things that the conscious self has. So then, you know, there's alien elements, but it's not the conscious, it's not the conscious self integrating with the subconscious self. It's the angel integrating with subconscious self. And somehow that produces this conscious realization. At least that's what's in this one small yeah. paragraph. The image I'm getting is like, okay, yeah, the angel is in Tifereth. Mm -hmm. Can't really argue that. And the angel is described, I think in, in the end of this, his commentary is described as being the center of gravity and uh, also having access via paths to all the Sephiroth around it and that sort of thing. Oh, I see what you're saying. The angels in Tifereth, so you think it's the Ruach integrating with the subconscious self because the Tifereth is the center of the Ruach. He says, as far as the adept is concerned... The angel is in Tefereth because the angel is standing, the adept is standing in Yosod, and Tefereth is the next thing he sees. Mm -hmm. But I think the angel is comes from the supernals. For sure. Yeah. So, I, I 100% agree with that. And I think, like, I mean, with this ritual, we are standing below Tifereth. So we yeah. are not seeing beyond Tifereth. So this is where, you know, this is. This is where we uh, were looking at the Ahad stuff, for instance, and he's referring to uh, the false father. Um, and in it, that sounds bad, but it's just mm -hmm. basically when you're looking up at the sun, that's, you know, brightening up the sky and that's all you can see. So you can't see all the stars and everything beyond it. So uh, and that's where we're at with this. Right. Uh, and it seems like, OK, we're drawing back the bow. We're dipping into the um, unconscious and dragging, firing that up to unify with the angel so the whole shebang gets destroyed in a in a blast let's finish with these demons i i think i think bez is a sort of ha like gnome it's not spelled the same way in egyptology as it is in the pgm mm -hmm. but that could be because the pgm is is written in Greek, so there might be issues yeah. of transliteration, but I'm pretty sure that Bez is um, is a household god that's worshipped all over Egypt and um, is sort of like a like dwarvish kind of character with a long beard and cross eyes, it's sort of like a like a goofy looking, friendly looking guy mm -hmm. um, that uh, that defends the home basically from all manner of evil and as the cult develops it becomes he becomes like a good versus evil character so bez is like the good guy and now that you say in the golden dawn ritual typhon was somebody was was a third yeah demon. it was satan slash typhon i thought i thought apophoros was apophis uh it's but, described in the neophyte as uh, a serpent a um, serpent and uh Bez is described as the brutal power of demoniac force, and Apophrates is the stooping dragon. All right. Well, here's uh, Apophis. His Wikipedia page shows him as a snake, so uh, and mm -hmm. has and nightly battles with Ra. Yeah, this is the guy I was thinking of under the sea. So, um, in a way, you could think of them as good and evil, because like the 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 home dwarf being like the the good local god and the um the snake under the you know being the darkness that fights the sun at night um but they become demons here i don't exactly know how this happens but the idea of the, as the one as being like bread and the other being wine mm, you know like the, the homey the homey hearthy kind of 
you know, obedient demon that protects your family being the bread and then the mysterious night snake that fights the sun being the mm-hmm. wine. Um, you can see sort of how evolution of those ideas might happen. Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't, what's going on here doesn't necessarily tell us what what the pgm origins of this ritual are right yeah. like like the like the the greeks in where in uh like the coptics and, Ale- yeah. the the greeks the in the the greek immigrants in alexandria i think is where it is in alexandria who pra- who actually practiced this ritual in like you know 200 years after the death of christ uh, might not have had the same interpretations of these words as as Crowley yeah, did. So actually, they might not discussing. say that they may not say that Bez is a demon. Yeah, you know. I mean, I think Crowley's using all of these things for specific purposes, and uh, like for instance, yeah, his etymological definitions of these names and whatnot. Um, they are largely based on Kabbalah and mm-hmm. and sort of associating with uh, the Hebrew alphabet and with uh, the tarot correspondences and that sort of thing, uh, maybe astrological correspondences. And I think there's uh, some of them uh, are similar to certain words that like ancient Greek words and whatnot that he'll uh, he'll correspond to that as well. Um, like Soto, mm-hmm. I think would be really close to Soter or Savior. And uh, Foteth, I think, was like close to the Greek word for light and okay. that sort of thing. So, so some of those kinds of etymological similarities. Um, and then he'll have like he has pata Applefrats Ra. Uh, he actually uses Applefrats as the dra- This is a case of him using it as the dragon, but relating it to Nuit. Mm-hmm. So I guess as the circumference, whereas yeah. pata would be Hadit and Ra is Rahur Kuit. Yeah, in that case. Um, but actually there's a little passage in Liber 65 that might elucidate this as well, uh, because in chapter three, there is the passage that, uh, then the word of Adonai came unto me by the mouth of the magister, mine, saying, O heart that art girt about with the coils of the old serpent, lift up thyself unto the mountain of initiation, and relating the old serpent to being the constricting desires and that sort of thing because he goes on to at least that's what he's alluding to in the commentary and then but i remembered yay than yay theli yay lilith these three were about me from of old for they are one beautiful wast thou lilith O thou serpent woman and in the commentary and whatnot he's referring to these things as serpents Than, Theli, and Lilith, the three serpents. And I can't help but relate that to this Yesod Mm -hmm, place as mm -hmm, well. mm -hmm. And and he ends up talking about the Lilith and how he enjoyed, but there was always this taint uh, with it as well. So I think it's like the desire and the luxury of of physical embodiment and and life, but with that taint of uh, the destructiveness that comes with it and watching the decay in the future and in in the... uh, that it was born from the the worm of slime and all that sort of mm-hmm, thing. Mm-hmm. So um, I feel like that kind of helps us a little bit with that idea. It's that heart girt with a serpent, but this is sort of like the corrupt level or manifestation of the serpent, the unpurified serpent. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. I mean, there's whenever you see old snake, 
that old snake is specifically the um, the King James Bible name for the dragon that falls from heaven in Revelation. Yeah. And it is called that old snake uh, who is, and it might even use the name Satan. Mm-hmm. Who, like it might even say that explicitly. The dragon fell from heaven. He is that old snake, snake called the devil. Called the and, yeah. called the devil, and then and then point him. That's that's the only place in the Bible where it points the devil back at the serpent in the Garden of Eden mm-hmm. as well. So, yeah. um, and Crowley uh, was definitely uh, reared on that uh, on the King James version of the Bible on that too. So. Um, but then the the climax of this ritual, the la- almost the last thing you declare, you say. Uh, the heart girt with the serpent is my name or something like yeah. this. And then you say the, the refrain one more time and the uh, mm-hmm. asabao, such are the words. But like the last novel declaration anyway is, uh, is uh, the heart girt with the serpent is my name. So this idea of a rest- – and, and in 65 too, there is this idea of, of the heart is restricted by the serpent. The coil, yeah. my coils shall never relax throughout the aeons. Yeah, in fact, he in yeah. in uh, sixty five he uh, he he then uh, tries to invoke the angel to help him, but the angel alone can't help him. So he also invokes the elephant god, and uh, they come to his rescue mm-hmm. and all this sort of thing. So it's sort of like, oh, that's interesting, and that's probably worth meditation as well. I think it's chapter five uh, of sixty five. Uh, there's a section that says, like, Thou slain the ancient dragon that sat upon the stagnant waters, then were the fresh springs unloosed that the folk athirst might be at ease. Mm-hmm. Um, but then again, within, you know, a few pages, there's this thing about my coil shall never relax throughout the, <laughs> throughout the <laughs> century. So the the serpent is, is, is both this oppressive force, but also this is something you learn in Thelema, that the... Um, that the conditions are are restrictive in the correct direction mm. and that 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 fighting against those restrictions is is the error that mm. prevents you from attaining your adeption. Yeah, it's interesting that in both cases it's water as well cuz what I was referring to is the chapter of water and what you're ta- talking about is yeah. releasing the waters onto the those thirst. Uh, as, as long as I've said that there's a a couple of quotations in here that explain it too. So, uh, the characteristics of the cosmos, this is, uh, in the middle of section B, sort of partway through the sixth paragraph, the characteristics of the cosmos, it includes a standard of structure, a rigidity to make reference possible upon these foundations of condition, which are not things in themselves, but the canon to which things conform it is builded the temple of being, whose materials are themselves perfectly mysterious, inscrutable to the soul, and like the soul imagining themselves by symbols which we may feel, perceive, and adapt to our use without ever knowing the whole truth about them. The adept sums up all these items by claiming authority over every form of expression possible to existence, whether it be a spell, an idea, or a scourge, an act of God, it is of himself. The adept must accept every spirit, every spell, every scourge as part of his environment and make them all subject to himself, that is, consider them as contributory causes of himself, 
They have made him what it is. They correspond exactly to his own faculties. So, you know, the, there's this thing where you, the refrain of this ends with, and every uh, spell and scourge of God may be obedient unto me. Mm-hmm. But this explains obedience as being the mutual understanding that they are the necessary conditions of my existence, mm-hmm. you know. And so it's, it's, it's not only that you uh, are able to gain control of your environment, but that you gain acceptance of your environment as it is because it brought you forth in the place where you are now reciting Liber Samic and being able to attain your adepthood. Uh, And that if if the course of your life had run differently, uh, uh, well, the Enochian spirits tell me I'm not allowed to say this, but the course of your life just didn't run differently. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, there's only, uh, you know, there, there is only one condition and you exist in that, you know, mm. you are radically fated to end up where you are. And so having having those can every spell and scourge of God obedient unto you also means that you don't attempt to change them, except insofar as you're purifying your being to be in relation well, in relation to them. It's interesting that this is like where that idea that the adept is themselves God mm-hmm. is uh, really explicitly said here. Um, I mean, with God in quotations, of course, but uh, it's saying um, that a spell, uh, that is idea, or a scourge, that is an act, of God, that is of himself. I glossed over that. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, and it's it's really, uh, uh, and, and what the, what you're describing is true, and it's, it's always seemed to me that uh, this idea that the individual is their own God, essentially, the, the individual is God, seems like megalomania in the extreme. It's useless in terms of megalomania because it's just going to send you off the rails. Taken here, the way you're describing, it's the ultimate responsibility because you are responsible for every spell and scourge. You are making them all obedient unto you, but you are thereby putting yourself in not just control, but in direct responsibility. It's so, it it almost seems more profound in a way, right? To say, all my own ideas and all my own acts, let them be obedient unto me. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, everyone in our generation saw Star Wars and saw Luke Skywalker meditating and then saw Luke Skywalker try to levitate a stone. <laughs> and we all tried to <laughs> levitate stones and none of us tried to stand on our heads. None of us tried to meditate and none of us tried to do that handstand. Yeah. You know, uh, um, somehow it seems more accessible, more possible that we could do telekinesis than that we could do feats of athleticism or feats of deep self-reflection. <laughs> the, 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 something about this, uh, this, uh, let, let every idea and every act of myself be obedient unto me. Uh, um, th- that is actually is within reach, but it's something people really very rarely try to <laughs> try to achieve. Uh, and here it takes the intervention of an angel to, to, to get you there. Even if the angel is only I who am most myself. <laughs> That was, no man hath seen at any time. Yeah, it was real. Well, I mean, it was interesting. I was telling you earlier about the uh, the experience that I had with my Enochian working and that, and I feel like uh, 
Uh, I actually do want to briefly jump into that if that's okay, just to sort of, because sure. uh, uh, I had been working towards that, uh, putting together the table and putting together the sigilla, like the wax sigillum DMF uh, for the top and then each of the ones for the table legs and the th- covers to go over the table legs and all of these things got the ring, got the lamen, got, you know, put all this stuff together over the course of about six months. And then I finally did my uh, my working, which lasted f- 18 days altogether, and it was uh, ended on August 4th, mm-hmm. which was the 440th anniversary of Dee and Kelly being instructed to have the table finished by. And so uh, it just, you know, it was a big buildup to this thing. And so I finally got through, I managed to get through this uh, really extensive working where I was adding and adding the invocations. So it got pretty intense, like in terms of like, it could take me two hours at a sitting and I was doing that three times a day while trying to hold down a job. And uh, that uh, by the time I got to the end of it, the night before I was, I was just like deeply thankful that I was able to actually get through that whole process without ending up slacking or missing something or failing in some way. And, uh, um, you know, it's the type of thing where you like to believe, you know what, even if nothing comes of this, this experience was still worthwhile. So the next day, seemingly nothing, or at least not nothing, uh, just no visual Mm -hmm. visions in the stone like I was expecting. And so, uh, um, instead I had this brief vision this brief kind of, I don't know, trance or whatever you want to call it, basically this insight into uh, why God is one. And so like the whole time I was doing this thing, I was constantly, you know, when I wasn't doing any any workings or was just out and about, I was doing uh, the mantra constantly in my mind. Which is what Crowley was doing when he was doing the Aethers. That was the mantra he was using, which is the uh, Arabic um, God. Say, He, God is one. Uh, there is no other. Um, he's yada, yada, yada. Oh, I see. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So um, that's what I was continuously going and say, He, God is one. Uh, and then on top of that, I was throughout the working using prayers and invocations from kind of D's time and, and from using D as inspiration and that sort of thing. And very kind of in that Christian mindset, I guess, putting on that hat of like, here's the archangels, the angels, and I'm talking to God or I'm trying to work with God through his angels and pray to God and really deeply feel those prayers and pretty much re-engage with God that I, that relationship I've had throughout my life, but including my earlier, you know, youth, that relationship that I had with God, uh, not just going with how it evolved with the Lima. And so that put me very much in that kind of, there was a large Christian element to that, right? Uh, that Christian cosmology or kind of um, stance in relation to God, I guess. And so when it didn't come off the way I expected, the the vision that I did get was, as I say, the the uh, why God is one. And this was a vision of uh, basically no matter what God you're you're worshiping, you're praying, you're inflaming yourself in prayer and invoking often. And it could be Jupiter, it could be Mercury, it could be uh, Yahweh, it could be 
Jesus, it could be any God, but it's the act of worship, the act of prayer, the act of inflaming yourself in prayer, that that energy that's built up. Um, somehow that was God. And even trying to put it into words, like I said before, mm-hmm. it's, it's kind of like it falls apart as soon as I'm putting it into words. It was direct and immediate when I was feeling it. And because of the state of mind I was in, it felt like a complete deflation. Not that experience per se. I mean, it was that experience seemed awful because it tore out from under me <laughs> the, the, what I'd been building up. And, uh, and it's, and also it, it finally gave me like, I, I've had difficulty with the God is man kind of thing that tends to go with the OTO, I think largely, mm-hmm. but, uh, it comes up in Liberaz and that sort of thing. And I've kind of had like a little bit of a, you know, a difficulty completely wrapping my head around that. Or completely coming to terms with it. And I guess it's probably just baggage that I still carry, you know? So in this case, it was like, okay, and that makes total sense out of that whole God is man, man is God kind of thing. Well, what you were really trying to do, uh, what you wanted to do during this period was this Enochian working that you had you had practiced, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but you were also, for the sake of the podcast, doing Libra Samech every morning, right? Yeah. And the and and the re- I think the reason you're talking about this is that the the revelation you got about like um, the one God is the prayer. So no matter who you're, what God you're <laughs> praying to, um, it it it's it's still monotheistic because it's the prayer itself that's the mm-hmm. that's the deity. I think this is an appropriate. Um, sort of insight to have uh, uh, for when you've been doing this ritual that's specifically directed towards the angel, you know? Yeah. Uh, um, and I think I have two things to say about this, and they're very different, so forgive me if I seem to be bouncing <laughs> around. Uh, the first thing I want to say about this for specifically to listeners is that Darren's done lots of magic work in his life. So if he decides that he wants to, you know, build the whole temple correctly and then go in and, and, and sit down in a very formalized way and over a series of many days put together and, and, and a, a set of invocations and see if they work, um, like that's super great for, for Darren. But if you're a listener who has not done lots of magic work in your life, um, don't in, don't invest <laughs> eight months in like arts and crafts before <laughs> you you know uh, what I did with my uh, Enochian stuff that I um, uh, did quite recently is to just like paint one of the watchtowers and hang it and then do a bunch of invocations around it. And then, like, as I was doing that, I painted the next one. And then when a little bit of money came in, I booked a commercial or something like that. I bought the ring. And uh, and you can do, you know, you can do the magic work to the degree that you're able. Mm-hmm. And uh, as long as you have your, your eye on developing your tools and your temple don't ever rest on your laurels and just say oh what i've got now is good enough you don't uh, wait until everything's perfect to start yeah i mean what i ended up with was the angels telling me that that i i really needed to put the space together a little better before i was gonna get get more but what i got was quite a lot (laughs) you know (laughs) and uh and you put all the all the work into building the temple correctly and felt disappointed by what you received because you'd put six months of energy into it. But 
you know, now that you have the temple, you have you have to use it consistently, yeah. right? And your workings will improve as you as you practice them more. Yeah, right? and so. there was there was a, I could palpably feel um, like a, an astral. Uh, development happening over the course of the working. So, and I also had an impression that uh, it did work. I was like, I had an impression that I was being told that it did work, but just not having that phys- that direct evidence was. Uh, I should emphasize that, like, I mean, I'm I'm very honest with myself. So I recognized that I had this natural frustration and resentment at the idea that it didn't. You know, I didn't get manifestations or visualizations or visible or audible things happening in the way that I was hoping. And so there was a natural period of, uh, that I felt like I had to process that. Mm -hmm. And, um, and that's me being honest with myself and, um, being honest with everybody here. Uh, it's a little difficult to, you know, go through all that and then admit openly that you, seemingly failed right right but i'm hoping that you know i'm by talking about it this is like you know this is legitimately one of the things that happens apparently well (laughs) but both ways are the right way right like you have all your tools together your temples kind of what you want it to be at least for now Mm -hmm. and uh and and now there's nothing to it but to do it yeah uh and so you'll get lots of practice in and 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 things will sharpen up over time and you'll feel great about it yeah um I, i i did not do that first i started you know just hit the ground running and then i got to a point where my invocation was progressing faster than my arts and crafts. And I, mm. I needed to take a break from invocation to develop my arts and crafts before I could get any further. And both ways are the right way, unless you've never done it before. <laughs> In which case, the the arts and crafts are just going to become a, a procrastination tool. Yeah, And absolutely. getting to it sooner than later. That's one of the, th- that's what I wanted to emphasize. Is yeah. That for reader, for, for listeners, getting to it sooner than later is better. That was a legitimate thing just before I started doing the working. Um, I, I legitimately thought to myself, is there any way I could find more things to busy myself with and put this off? <laughs> <laughs> Um, and then the second thing I, I wanted to to say about that is what was the second thing I wanted to say about that? <laughs> oh crap! Well, while you're thinking about <laughs> moving it, moving on. <laughs> <laughs> while you're thinking about it, I just wanted to say like uh, one of the things that I because you had mentioned previously, uh, I'm I had flippantly remarked. Well, I don't even flippant or not, but I was saying something about Jesus's last words mm-hmm. on the cross being, uh, "Oh God, Oh God, why have you forsaken me?" And you corrected me on that, saying that no, that's the title of the uh, of, psalm of a, of a psalm. And there's a th- there's three versions of what the last thing he said was, and they're all titles of psalms. Mm-hmm. In fact, like the two that I know of, uh, one of them's the beginning of the psalm, and as I found out, the one the other one's the end of the psalm. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. So uh, and so like. Like that day, uh, the final day when I had that disappointment, but I also had that vision, I went for a walk to try and process things, and uh, that came to mind. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to read that psalm right now. Mm-hmm. And it's somebody speaking from the point of view in a, of a much worse situation than I was in. <laughs> <laughs> They're like being, being abandoned and hated by everyone and being tortured and killed, and, and God, why have you forsaken me? But at the end of it, he finally uh, resolves, like, I will praise your name and give it, pass it on to other people. And so I, I took that as being like, you know what? Um, 
where I felt an intuition that that meant, well, you know, my insight that I had, I can share. Mm-hmm. Now, that being said, the insight that I had was relevant to me at that time. So doesn't necessarily mean it's, you know, going to be true for anyone else at any given time. So in what way was I said I said that I thought that your insight about the the substance of the prayer being the the one god and that all gods being one I said that I thought that was appropriate for the Libra Samach ritual and uh this is I want to make it clear that this is not orthodox okay this is my mm-hmm. kind of understanding uh we're getting a little bit riffy now so yeah. I'm riffing uh but my feeling is that most people coming into the AA will probably have a naive uh, rationalist perspective. Um, and, uh, that naive is not, um, uh, deme- uh, pejorative. Like, I don't mean, you know, you're so naive. I mean, uh, naive ra- rationalist means that like, there really are objects and we really do through the medium of our senses have direct access to a- objects and we can learn meaningful things about the world we're in. You know, a, a book is distinct from a bookshelf, is distinct from uh, a basketball, and we can do science about all of these things. And then, uh, and and the the AA is quite happy, I think, to take people who are uh, atheists as as well. You know, mm. uh, Crowley says because the hate you can take atheists because the hatred of God is a passion, and I think <laughs> most atheists would be offended by that characterization. Um, but as long as you're passionate about your relationship to deity they can they can kind of work with you um but by the time you get through the first order and get into into Tefereth, um what you should be experiencing is experiencing is something like radical dualism hmm. um and that you should have begun to understand that dualism is self versus not self and so um so it's not just hundreds and hundreds of discrete objects that interact with each other it's you and everything else Mm -hmm. and uh to the degree that you may still be a naive rationalist you may still think you can do science about everything else but even that veneer should be starting to come down one of the few philosophy books that crowley wants aspirants to read is uh, the prolegomena to any future metaphysics by Immanuel kant where where it's shown that the objects have the power of appealing to our senses uh, and so if the book is blue, all it, I, I can't say the book is blue. I have the book. I can say that the book has the power to impress upon my mm. <laughs> senses the idea of blueness and that the qualities of the object are actually in the beholder. So this starts to break down as you go through the first order of the AA until you realize there's, there's, like, there's like me and I contain the universe. And then there's the universe itself, which is this very scary amorphous you know <laughs> unattainable thing that i can't know anything about and and then the once you're in this position of of having realized a radical dualist perspective the hga shows up looking like you you know the 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 everything else that is the reflection of you and you come into uh you come into relationship with the not self as mm. a kind of god and and become a, a a devotee of that private religion you know 
people who've had the HGA experience say they don't like to talk about it, but that's my <laughs> kind of, uh, I, I haven't had the HGA experience, so I am comfortable talking about it. And so you having, uh, having monotheism imposed upon you from an external source, you know, we talk about the, we've been talking about the violence of this ritual, how you try to defend your citadel and, and you can't, and the angel comes in and, and knocks over your, ideas and uh and then you know and then for for you to have him tell you that like i i am god and the prayer is god and this is you know whatever else you think is out there it's really just your text in the preface to this speech uh um to this ritual it says something like uh thou art he that having made voice by his commandments is lord of all king ruler helper Mm -hmm. so it's the it's uh, the angel does the commandments and the commandments make the voice and the voice, you know, that uh, and, and because the the angel has has commanded there to be a voice that the, the voice hails the angel as king, ruler and helper. Yeah, I like the because uh, that reminds me of where it says, uh, hear me for I am the angel of Ptah Apophrats Ra. And in the commentary, it's pointing out that uh, the adept... Um, admits himself to be the angel of his angel. So just as the angel is the transmitter of the word, um, so the human body and mind are the further transmitter of that same word. In the uh, in the PGM, the original, um, that word is something like prophet or vassal or something like that, and Crowley changes it to angel. But it's okay... Mm. At least in the English version, I don't know what it is in the Greek, um, but uh, but the word angel in Hebrew means messenger. messenger. Yeah. So like it, it it's I am like I am the I am the prophet of my angel. I am the angel of my angel. It's sort of the same the yeah. same idea, but but Crowley's translation, angel of Asara Nefer, has a more it has it has a more profundity in the way you're talking about yeah cuz the uh, especially if it's if it's a if i'm right about the the self not self dualism you know those really being crystallized mm-hmm. um that uh the, it, it emphasizes the way in which the two beings reflect each other you know yeah i feel like uh, one of the things that i've gotten out of doing this ritual for the past uh, just over a moon um <laughs> is uh the I think like just by this and things like Libra Starte, where you're doing devotional things. Mm-hmm. In fact, uh, Crowley does recommend Libra Starte as one thing that you could be doing to help this, as well as practices of yoga and uh, reading of Libra sixty five and that sort of thing. So, um, but Libra Starte is devotional God worship. So you choose mm-hmm. a God and you for a few months you're just completely dedicating yourself, building an altar, doing. Uh, invocations and whatnot and in this case uh this as an invocation yeah you're it's like you're training your mind more and more to focus on the angel and uh i find that over time one of the things that happens is you start to take seriously the duality between yourself and this angel and uh whereas you could very easily just pay mouth service to something like that you know just saying a prayer every day and and not really committing samadhi upon it, so to speak, you know, (laughs) having that real realness to it. Um, 
that we could do more with this. Um, we could go do like a sort of a close reads of sections A, B, G, A, B, F, G, or something like that. Mm-hmm. And pull some of the the metaphysics stuff and a few more of the quotes about what it means to be the HGA. But um, why don't we make that decision later mm-hmm. after you've had a chance to listen back to this and see how complete it seems. Yeah, it might be debatable whether it's worth uh, doing it while it's still fresh or maybe leaving it until a later date when we can come back oh, to it Oh, that's a good idea. Yeah, do something else next month and then do that do that later. Mm-hmm. Cuz we've done so much we did so much metaphysics in the last year that yeah. that and I I do like the way in which the violence of this nuances the picture we've already established, but maybe it's too much of this maybe the conversation we've had is fresher than you know, relitigating self not self dualism and <laughs> and uh, divided for love's sake for the chance of union and all that stuff that we've already talked about. Uh, so, what I want do you know what uh, we've we asked each other this question all the time? Do you know what year this commentary was written? I don't. Uh, yes, it would have been in Chefalu because oh my gosh, everything we read yeah, know, is written right? in Chefalu. <laughs> he was so friggin' prolific during that period. Yeah. but yeah, and the reason I can say that is because it's written. What's the wording? It was. Uh, Yep, there we go. Prepare, or oh, even gives the date. Prepared anno seven, uh, 17 at the Abbey of Thelema in Cephaloidium, so in uh, in Cephalu, uh, by the B666 in service to Frater Progradior. And Frater Progradior is Frank Bennett. Oh, who's cool. Not Alan Bennett, don't mix that up. Oh. But uh, <laughs> everyone's named Bennett. <laughs> yeah, everybody's got to be have similar names. Charles Stanfield Jones, Charles. Uh, C.F. Russell. <laughs> um, but yeah, um, okay, I'm just going off the top of my head. I didn't look this up recently, but I, I seem to remember he was, I think, the head of the OTO in Australia okay. at the time. And he came to Chefalu to spend some time with Crowley. I remember an anecdote in The Confessions where Crowley mentions having walked along the beach with him and Crowley was talking about something or other and something he said kind of clicked off for Frank that uh, like resolved some knot that he had been trying to untie and uh but either way he ended up like uh um Crowley prepared this for him so that he could uh have an engagement with the uh the knowledge and conversation working okay okay cool so um uh this is uh 1917 Lieber Samick? Oh, no, it's the 17th year of the Aeon. Oh, okay, so, so 1921. Yeah, yeah, okay. Uh, so um, the PGM, uh, I, I'm going to guess, Papyri Greco Magica or something like this, do you know? That sounds about right. The Greek magical papyri, what we call it now, it, it's not one book, I don't think. It's a just it's a collection of, yeah. of bits and pieces of ritual um, from uh, Alexandria in Egypt, but written in Greek by Greek speakers from about uh, the first century to the f- f- uh, fourth century, fifth or fourth century after uh, the death of Christ. Um, and so there's little bits of, of magic ritual. And I, I recently bought the book. It's not a hundred. It's like lots and lots and lots of little ritual fragments. And all of... The Liber Samic is on just one page. Hmm. Uh, what's there is the refrain 
Um, but it doesn't say the refrain is part of the ritual. It says the refrain is something you do, you know, you write something on your head and then you speak the refrain, uh, before the ritual. The ritual itself is the, is, uh, you know, section A, section B, all the barbarous names, and then, uh, and then the two, the two and a half prayers that kind of, kind of close it out. That's about, you know, more than 1500 years ago for the barbarous names and for some of those passages of, of invocation. And it seems pretty explicitly to be a, an exorcism um, because the end of every stanza where it says like, uh, uh, you know, um, hear me or whatever, um, it says, uh, it says to drive the spirit out of, you know, uh, so you're, you're, um, trying to, trying to cast demons out. Like it really is like a, a the movie, the exorcist type of <laughs> ritual. Um, and then, uh, fast forward to the classical era of the, the golden dawn, the early days of the golden dawn, uh, Mathers is doing a, um, a translation of the Thurgogoitia, which explains how to exercise all sorts of demons and trap them in brass vessels and then get them to go and do do things for you, uh, make them servants. Uh, and then um, when that finally gets published in 1903, I think, uh, Crowley is the editor, and he puts in the beginning both the PGM in Greek, the, P, the, the headless ritual, the PGM headless ritual in Greek, the PGM head, headless ritual in English, and then his own golden dawnified version. He's thrown in a bunch of pentagrams, taken the refrain, taken the, the, little, the little preliminary prayer from the end of the ritual and made it a, uh, made it a, a refrain to pray to each of the four quarters, hear me, and then, uh, and, uh, and then um, added some Enochian symbols. And then uh, basically, and then for the, for Libra Samech, he's removed that stuff from the body of the text and just preserved more or less the original plus the refrain, uh, changed a few of the words. So instead of Pharaoh... Instead of Pharaoh Oro whoever, uh, he calls it Asura Nefer and and different things like this. Um, and instead of Moses, he calls it uh, instead of Moses uh, um, and the ceremonies of Israel, it becomes this, you know. Uh, uh, I blanked on it because I've been using my own angel's name and my own. <laughs> uh, my own uh, name for those positions. It whatnot. becomes uh, Onkaf Nakansu oh, yeah, and yeah. the ceremonies of Kem. Um, I've been using my own name and the ceremonies of Thelema because mm-hmm. I've taken enough initiations in enough different groups that I feel like I do know many of the ceremonies <laughs> of Thelema, so that's fine for me. Um, and then, uh, but then he adds the long commentary. Uh, that we've been analyzing today in 1921. So you can get three versions of this published ritual that are all different. Um, and to emphasize the fact that what has antiquity is these prayers and the barbarous names, you know, the movements going to the quarters, uh, drawing the elemental signs, that doesn't have antiquity. That's 1903. And then the visualizations where you extend the phallus way up into the heavens and then open it and allow it to receive the light of the angel. Um, that's later, uh, later again. 
Crowley does use this ritual for his own HGA ritual, but it's not, he hadn't done that yet when it was published in 1903. Crowley has an HGA ritual that he abandons that's very Enochian. Then he publishes this ritual in 1903. Then he receives the Book of the Law and says, I guess I'm supposed to be a teacher. I guess I should mm-hmm. do my HGA ritual. And then he does this, the headless ritual, uh, which we now call the bornless ritual, uh, on his walk across across China. So that's how it becomes, it, how it goes from a ritual of, of, of exorcism to cast demons out of sick and crazy people to become a ritual of general uh, invocation to sort of power up before you do an exorcism and then finally a, a ritual to contact your holy guardian angel. So it's to say, again, prioritize getting started sooner. You know, if, if, uh, if you don't know how to travel in the body of light and uh, the, these instructions about going around in circles and imagining different sigils and doing different gestures of that seems esoteric. You can start by just reading the prayer as if it's on one page and reciting the barbarous names and, uh, and, uh, and that, that gets you going and then build it out as you, as you go in the way you're instructed to do anyway in, in, both versions of the Admiral and in the AA instructions, you know, yeah. you build your own ritual for this. And as Crowley says uh, here, invoke often mm-hmm. and uh, elsewhere, inflame thyself in prayer. Yeah, I did this once, once, and it didn't do, it felt cool, <laughs> but it didn't do anything. Uh, I did this once, once in my asana, facing one direction, only east, and just, uh, um, and just ch- basically chanting the barbarous names and reading the prayers and uh and doing it two and three times a day for eight weeks is better <laughs> you know. i i did this uh i started doing this back in 2013 and uh i started getting really serious sticking stuff on the walls to remind myself what the sigils were and all that sort of thing mm-hmm. and then i uh had a fire <laughs> oh person, is that what happened yeah the person downstairs tried to kill themselves by running the gas on the stove and then decided to have a final cigarette for the road and uh luckily i wasn't around at the time but uh it was uh basically i ended up in a new place after that so Lo- uh, this is another weird thing lots of thelemites catch themselves on fire <laughs> there's there you weren't the only one that yeah, year yeah that's right got themselves on fire Ram had a else. fire lost a uh, bunch of stuff i remember him talking about that one point. oh wow yeah yeah and other people we know mm-hmm. uh, have had fires thelemites like to light them it's not just because there's candles around i don't think <laughs> <laughs> no there's weird stuff going on i mean yeah i've actually i remember somebody else yeah having uh the only room that survived in the house was uh, uh the the room with the stele that's what i was remembering what I remember. too yeah um, although I won't say their name, but, uh, yeah, anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so, uh, possibly more to come on Lieber Samech, but possibly not next month. Mm-hmm. Okay, cool. Sounds good. Uh, good stuff, uh, Darren, nice talking to you. Yeah, love is the law, love underworld. Love is the law, Thanks for listening. Find us online at torontothelema.org. Watch for events on Meetup and the usual social media spots. And join us again in the darkly splendid abodes.
jokes coming your way. Curly <laughs> <laughs> cord joke number my, five. I'm going on Carson this weekend. I need to work on my tight five about curly cords. <laughs> Did you mean, was it Carson Daly or Johnny Carson? <laughs> I, I assume that joke doesn't need any help. 